Why are oblique injuries so bad for baseball players? I'll ask Matt Cedarholm, the big hurt columnist at Baseball HQ, about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 19th. It's show number 14 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday news and notes edition for you. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Carlos Carrasco, Austin Nola, the outfields in Cincinnati and San Francisco, and more. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League including Michael Franco landing in Baltimore, Nate Pearson out for Toronto, infield position battles in Texas and Los Angeles, and more too. We'll have our HQ Spotlight with Matt Cedarholm, the Market Pulse and Big Hurt columnist at BaseballHQ.com, discussing how he got to Baseball HQ and his work on the Market Pulse preseason position previews and in the Big Hurt injury analysis column. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon looks at San Diego center field shortstop C.J. Abrams. And in the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Seattle infielder Ty France. It's another Big Friday News and Notes edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Less than two weeks to opening day. We gotta talk some baseball. Less than two weeks to go till opening day, Thursday, April 1st. It almost seems like it's an April Fool's joke, but it isn't. Something about this seems new to me, but at my age, lots of things seem new to me. Opening day will have a full slate of 15 games. The action starts with the Blue Jays and the Yankees at 1.05 p.m. Eastern. Garrett Cole on the hill for the Yankees against that perennial Blue Jays favorite, TBD. And nine hours later, the last game will start. It's the first interleague tilt of the season, the Giants in Seattle to face the Mariners. And there will be fans in most or all of our stadiums. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, I hope there's fans in the seats for our Market Watch player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report. And leading off, it's our National League news and analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. You know, Nick, just the other day in playing time today at BaseballHQ.com, our Mets reporter, Phil Hertz, reported that pitcher Carlos Carrasco had a sore elbow. But uh, Carrasco said, just normal soreness, no worries, plan to be ready for opening day. Now we get word that Carrasco has maybe a torn hamstring, is that right? And the odds of being ready for opening day have gone way, way down. What's the latest on Carlos Carrasco? Yeah, it sounds like he will not be ready for opening day. And I think at this point, we don't know how bad the tear is, whether it's just a a, a very slight tear or whether it's a a, uh, more major kind of problem. But uh, Carlos Carrasco will now not be ready for opening day. So the Mets have got now three pitchers competing for two spots. David Peterson, uh, Joy Lucchese, Jordan Yamamoto. Two of those guys are going to make the rotation. Uh, and so they, uh, before there was a competition for a single spot, now they've got uh, two of them going to make, uh, make the initial rotation for the Mets. Care to speculate uh, at all on who's going to be the front runner in that race? I would think David Peterson will be... Probably make the rotation. It's it's going to be Lucchese and Yamamoto 
at this point uh, to see who who turns out to be the uh, the fifth starter. Uh, and I really don't know at this point. I you know they're uh, they're we're still early in spring training, and a lot of time to go. So well, not really two weeks to go, but <laughs> <laughs> so they have to make some decisions fairly quickly. But I really don't uh, don't have any idea at this point. You know, I, I had heard some speculation that uh, they might use Lucchese in that uh, kind of bulk role. That they, the story was that they were thinking of going with the opener, bringing a reliever in to start the game, then uh, Lucchese act, acting as the bulk innings guy coming in second, which weirdly might be actually a benefit for Joey Lucchese because he has a real uh, difficulty with that third time through the order, and he could if he was coming in after the first inning, so he'd miss the bulk of the of the other guy's best hitters, at least the first time around, he could get through a couple of times in two, three innings if the Mets take a lead because he didn't start the game and came in in the second inning. All of a sudden, he could be in line for some cheap wins. Uh, that's possible, yeah. You know, it's one of those things that uh, uh, we might find a Yamamoto-Lukesi combination going uh, going every fifth day. With uh, Yamamoto starting the, uh, the the game and Lucchese following in the bulk role, so certainly something like that could work. Yeah, this Yamamoto is just like a blank slate to me. I have to I have to admit that uh, when I first saw the name, I thought, "Geez, who is this guy?" I remember that he was uh, came into the Mets from Miami a year ago or so, or maybe earlier this year. That's all I can remember about him. So this is going to be something that is kind of a mixed bag for fantasy players, Nick, it seems, in that it's a competition for uh, the last couple of spots in the pitching rotation, and nobody wants the winner anyway. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Well, we, we, have, we have him projected right now at a 4.75 XERA, a 60 BPV, so, you know, he's not going to pitch lights out, and a very thin margin of error, I think. Uh, lost velocities down, swinging strike rate down a little bit, so... Uh, Yamamoto was not someone I'd be wanting to bet on right now. Yeah, and I, based on Lucchese's sort of past history, I don't think I'd be too keen on betting on him either. Yeah, I don't think so either. So I think that the Mets actually may be out there looking for someone else at this point before between now and the start of the season. Or, as I said, they might try to figure out some way to cobble together uh, some kind of uh, opener-slash-bulk guy situation as well. Uh, moving on to uh, San Diego, the catcher Austin Nola. A lot of people had great hopes for Austin Nola this season, but he uh, broke his middle finger on his left hand in a game, and uh, he's going to be missing some time. Uh, this is something that Jock Thompson covered for playing time today. What's the latest on Austin Nola? At this point, we don't know how much time he's going to miss. Uh, he might even be ready for opening day, uh, but the, the injuries are certainly mounting up for the Padres. It might miss months uh, instead of weeks. We don't know. Victor Carantini is suddenly more interesting. Uh, Carantini's plate skills suggest he won't destroy your batting average or your OBP if he can get to his average power again, as he did in 2019. 2019, 11 home runs, 266 batting average, 348 uh, OBP. Uh, and uh, you know he, he's a, a, a could be could be a really good number two catcher if he gets some playing time. Twenty uh, two year old prospect uh, Luis Camposano suddenly becomes an intriguing flyer. Uh, he had a high A performance that was outstanding: nine oh six OPS, uh, fifty two walks, fifty seven strikeouts over four hundred twenty two at bats. So uh, something going on there that might be interesting if he could c continue it at upper levels. So. 
Uh, we'll just have to wait and see what, what, how things develop with Nola and how bad this, uh, this finger problem actually is. And, of course, it's on his catching hand, and so he's going to take a pounding in there from the fastballs and those balls in the dirt and stuff like that. It's not a not an insignificant injury for a catcher. It might be a little easier to tolerate in some other position players. And Jock Thompson reports that uh, Padres general manager A.J. Preller has been pretty aggressive about promoting his good prospects, and Camposano seems to be doing well this spring. Uh, this looks like a possible opportunity in drafts that are taking place this weekend before the news filters out, Nick. I think maybe need to take a closer look at Victor Caratini, but especially at this Camposano. Yeah, I think you're, you're very right about that because he has been quite aggressive about, about promoting prospects. Uh, and so uh, Camposano could show up and be a $1 pick in the draft and uh, do very, very well. In Cincinnati, I think they had some high hopes for outfielder Shogo Akiyama. But uh, he's got a hamstring injury as well. He's expected to miss at least a few weeks, according to the manager. Uh, what happens for the Reds outfield with Shogo Akiyama on the shelf? Well, what that means is that both Jesse Winker and uh, Nick Senzel are going to be in the lineup uh, almost every day. Uh, and uh, uh, Akiyama certainly moved out to the fourth outfielder role at this point uh, because the three of them were competing for two spots. So we can expect Winker and Senzel uh, to, be, to be out there playing every day and they both have some some real intrigue actually in terms of uh uh in terms in terms of possibilities uh winker has certainly been barreling up lately a, a huge spike in the stat mass stat cast metrics uh in 2020 eggs velocity was in the ninth percentile barrel rate soared to the 88th percentile uh so he had to open up his swing to get there strikeout rate wasn't horrible 69 percent contact rate so at this point, uh, immediate 300 batting average, 30 home run potential, says Stephen Nickran. So uh, Jesse Winker is someone you would want to want to jump on, I think. Uh, the, the other uh, issue is Nick Sinzel is a little bit more risky. Sinzel, of course, has an injury history that uh, uh, plays to play havoc with you because he, he simply can't stay in the lineup for extended periods of time. Um, but, but also has some, some interesting things to look at. Uh, when he's been healthy, he's shown flashes of his top prospect upside. Uh, for example, August 2020, 803 OPS, 0.63I, 150 expected power index and 31 at-bats. So he has 20, 20 potential. If he can get to 500 at-bats, he could certainly deliver on that. It always seems weird to me, uh, having been around this as long as I have, that when you know, we can uh, say with a straight face something like, he's got a 69% contact rate. Which isn't bad. <laughs> yeah, it does seem strange, doesn't it? Yeah, it used to be a 69% contact rate was, this guy's ticketed for Palookaville, and uh, let's find somebody who can put a bat on a ball. But uh, those times have changed, Nick, as we know. Uh, let's stay in the outfield but move to San Francisco. Uh, again, they've got a bit of a depth issue. Uh, sometimes depth is good, especially when the injuries start rolling around. But at the start of the season, we have, uh, according to Dan Marcus in Playing Time Tomorrow, covering the National League West, at least four players with a legitimate case to earn three spots. The guy that's almost certain to gain playing time out there is Mike Yastrzemski. He figures to lead the outfield candidates in plate appearances. That's all hit near the top of the order. Has shown the ability to uh, hit same-handed pitchers as well as, uh, uh, as, well as uh, opposite-handers. Alec Dickerson is the other established player who should be locked into regular playing time based on his skills and career. 278 expected batting average, 109 expected power index. 
uh, though unlike the Strimson Dickerson has shown fairly significant splits, uh, an 864 OPS versus right-handers, 687 versus left-handers, and so he may sit against lefties. So that leaves some other guys that have, a, have an opportunity. Uh, Mauricio Dubon, seemingly the top candidate to enter the season with the third starting outfield position, uh, tagged with 20 home run, 20 stolen base upside in the forecaster, has flashed some intriguing combination of skills, uh, 79% contact rate, uh, 98 expected power index, 145 speed, but only 288 career plate appearances. So uh, will he get in there enough to, uh, uh, first of all, have to maintain that level of performance that he's shown in the past over an entire season? Uh, and then will he, will he get to that 2020 potential, uh, get enough, uh, enough plate appearances for that to happen? And what about Austin Slater? Austin Slater figures to fill significant time for the team in the outfield as well. Uh, it naturally would pair with Dickerson based on his ability to hit left-handed pitching, 76% contact rate, uh, 114 power index, uh, 823 career OPS against left-handers. Against right-handers, Slater dropped back a lot, 64% contact rate, uh, 674 career OPS. So maybe stuck in that short-sighted platoon bowl. And then, Nick, we have a couple of other dark horse entrants. Uh, yeah, another couple of possibilities. Lamont Wade, acquired from the Twins in the offseason. Uh, primary, abil primary ability is uh, able to make contact and get on base. A career 13% walk rate, 81% contact rate, 0.83i. But uh, he's another lefty, so they could opt for a right-handed option such as Darren Ruff to try to balance their bench. Uh, those two guys are really, I think, competing for a bench spot at this point. Of the, of the group, uh, of course, Yastrzemski looks like the cream of the crop, and the rest of them have the questions that you raised, especially Dickerson on that possible platoon. Uh, one of the things that we've seen in Major League Baseball is that front offices and field managers are much more cognizant of player weaknesses in the regard of can a guy hit right-handed pitching if he's a right-handed batter or lefty-lefty. And if the answer is no, then the simplest solution is find somebody who can and let them split the time and I'm old enough to remember Nick the Baltimore Orioles did this many many years ago with uh, a, a platoon in left field I think John Lowenstein was one side of it and I can't remember who was the other side but when you combined the two of them you ended up with like a 310 hitter with 40 home runs or something like that so the platoon system can work and the unfortunate part of it from a fantasy perspective is whoever's on the short side of the platoon is really not rosterable in, in mixed leagues. And even the guy on the long side of the platoon goes from being the kind of guy whose rates would suggest he's a top three outfielder, but because of the lack of playing time or, or the reduction in playing time, becomes a fourth or fifth outfielder at best. Right, yeah. So, I, you know, the, uh, the guy on the short side of the platoon really has very uh, limited utility in fantasy unless he's a very good uh, base runner, for example. He's going to steal you a bunch of bases. But otherwise, not enough plate appearances to get uh, to get much from that short side. I kind of like Mauricio Dubon. Uh, that 2020 potential is certainly intriguing, uh, and it'll be interesting to see if he is able to to maintain a uh, a full a full outfielder spot for the full season. Uh, and he can put up some nice numbers. I think it was Gary Renicky who was the other side of that Baltimore platoon with uh, John Lowenstein. I could be wrong about that, but Gary Renicky's name just jumped into my head. Uh, 
Let's move to the speculator column. We like talking about Ryan Bloomfield's uh, speculations. These are plays that basically at Baseball HQ we're trying to find the 80% likelihood, but Ryan's willing to look at the 20% likelihood and toss a few coins. He had a column this week called Spring Training Tea Leaves, and he talked about Eric Floramonte, the uh, QBAB guy at BaseballHQ.com, quality of batted balls. And uh, Eric has looked into exit velocity in small samples and found that some of those small samples actually create some predictability. So uh, what Ryan did was go through and look at the QBAB situations in spring training this year, and a name that popped up right near the top of his list in Colorado, C.J. Crone. Yeah, C.J. Crone is absolutely mashing at this point. He's been a very popular HQ uh, uh, hedge throughout the draft season. And the market is kind of slowly catching on uh, since he signed with Colorado, but still a lot of upside to, where, to his current uh, draft position. Um, Kroon at this point has a, has a, a uh, only, only 16, we're only talking about 16 batted balls, but a maximum exit velocity of 116 miles an hour, uh, rates an A on the exit velocity scale, uh, a B on the launch angle scale, an A on the launch angle variability scale. Uh, so Kroon looks like he could be really, really good uh, playing in, in the thin air of Colorado. 323 he's hitting with a 344 on base guy doesn't draw a lot of walks but he's hitting the heck out of the ball as you said a 581 in spring so far and uh that would be markedly better than his career rates which have been hovering around 500 i think he was about 550 in detroit last year for the slugging percentage which is very promising especially like you said nick when he moves into the to, to the more friendly batting environment in Colorado, all of a sudden, uh, I know a lot of people were already looking at C.J. Crone, but uh, now there's a real strong reason to do it. It looks like he's ready to rumble. It sure does. It looks like he's in, in the spot where he could, uh, I mean, he's not been bad before, but uh, he's been uh, certainly a playable uh, uh, first baseman in, in fantasy before, but uh, looks like he'd be an absolute monster playing in Colorado, especially if you can move him in and out of the lineup when he's playing at home versus on the road. In Philadelphia, Nick, there looks like there's a situation developing in spring training as far as center field goes. Uh, they thought that Adam Hazley was going to be finally ready to go. Now he's suffered a groin injury, and the door might be open for a blast from the past. Odebel Herrera. Odebel Herrera has to play since 2019. Uh, he was suspended for a domestic after domestic violence uh, arrest, uh, but somehow he's still in his 20s. Uh, put up seasons of $15. between 2015 and 2018. So uh, he can be a kind of a spooky value in deep leagues. uh, And he's been hitting the ball fairly well. Uh, 111 maximum exit velocity. Uh, C on the uh, exit velocity scale. A C on the launch angle scale. Uh, Just an F on the variability scale. So not able to maintain that launch angle all the time. But certainly someone we're suddenly worth looking at because he might find himself with a major league job. Uh, and a guy who's got a little bit of speed to go along with that. So, uh, you know, a possibility late in the draft, perhaps. And, of course, I know a lot of people were looking at Scott Kingery as a perhaps a sneaky late play that might sort of back his way into some center field time. But, boy, he's really struggling in, in uh, spring training this year, Nick. Uh, I think the last I heard, he was batting 111. He was 3 for 27, if I'm remembering that right. He's got a home run, uh, so one solo home run. But, boy, he's really scuffling. Yeah, yeah, he, uh, he is indeed. 
And finally, how about Josh Rojas? There's lots of people who really like Josh Rojas uh, in the expert community, and Josh Rojas is really tearing the cover off the ball this spring. Yeah, he is indeed. Some impressive uh, QBAB scores as well. 13 for 35 with three homers, uh, and he's really hitting leadoff for Arizona. Uh, and uh, playing second base, playing shortstop, also can play some outfield. So uh, several paths of playing time with uh, Coley Calhoun out until at least mid-April. Uh, and so uh, should be perhaps creeping up sleeper lists. The, the thing about Rojas, if you look at the, uh, the scores, uh, good exit velocity, but not necessarily launch angle. Uh, and so that may prevent, uh, uh, pre- prevent things from being as good as we'd like them to be. But he's been, uh, been looking pretty, pretty good in spring training. The worry here is if you're banking on, on uh, Josh Rojas getting that role at the top of the batting order leading off and keeping that role, I think you got to temper your expectations a bit. He had a 418 on base percentage in 2019 in the minor leagues, but he had a 312 on base percentage in 2019 at the major league level and just 257 in the short season last year. So it's a bit of a struggle when you make that jump from the minor leagues to the major leagues. And Josh Rojas, so far at least, has not displayed a real terrific on base percentage at the major league level, including this spring. It's just 313. Right, yeah. So, so with on base percentage like that, especially as well as he's been hitting the ball uh, with uh, with a three thirteen on base percentage, not someone I think I would jump on right away. Two twenty seven batting average, also not uh, the kind of thing that really makes your eyes light up in a fantasy context. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out, and we'll catch up with you again next week with a week to go till opening day. Very good. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Now let's turn to the American League and co-general manager and columnist at Baseball HQ, it's Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Within two weeks of opening day, Patrick, I'm getting super excited. Big draft weekend coming up as well. Uh, Tout Wars will be drafting. Are you in any of the Tout Wars drafts this year? I already had my Tout Wars draft. Uh, The mixed straight draft was a week ago Tuesday, I guess. Okay, so this is the uh, last weekend, I guess, of Tout Wars, and uh, I'll be drafting the American League team on uh, Saturday morning, I think, at 10 o'clock. And if anybody who's listening to this is interested, I think the uh, there's going to be a Zoom channel dedicated to the draft, and, of course, there, there'll be some coverage on SiriusXM. So if you think it would be interesting to listen to my travails as I try to navigate <laughs> the uh, difficult world of the Tout American League single league format, uh, by all means, join the fun. Um, Is that the league that's still like half HQ people? <laughs> you're with you're at least with Doug and Bloomfield, right? Yeah, Ryan and Doug are in the league, and there's two from Rotowire, uh, Chris Liss and Jeff Erickson. So uh, that's almost half the slots right there accounted for by just the two of us. So it, it, it's still it's a terrific league. It's very very tough, uh, and uh, it's a lot of fun to play in. Let's start Ray with uh, the American League East. A lot of news coming out, starting in Baltimore, where the Orioles signed third baseman Michael Franco. Phil Hertz covers the Orioles for playing time today. How does Franco's arrival change the picture in Camden Yards? Yeah, Franco's no great shakes. He's a, I think, fair to characterize him as a pretty, pretty average player. Uh, but at third base for the Orioles, that actually <laughs> represents an upgrade. <laughs> you know? <It's> a star, right? <laughs> exactly. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man. You know? Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that might be a theme as we go through the Orioles news of the week here, by the way. <laughs> in, in, Fra- in Franco's particular case, you know, he makes pretty good contact, a career rate of 
uh, 83%, which in this day and age is, you know, is certainly above average, actually. It, you know, the power that comes along with that is, you know, a tick below average, uh, but it plays up, you know, with a lot of playing time. Uh, if he gets a lot of playing time and makes a lot of contact in Camden Yards, that you know, there could be a decent batting average to, uh, you know, 20 home runs sort of season there. And like we said, that's a, that's an upgrade on Rio Ruiz. I think the signing is indicative of the fact that it's an upgrade both offensively and defensively. You know, it, it's funny, if, I, when I was looking at this last night, I was a little surprised that, you know, my, my default reaction was, oh, you know, Franco, journeyman veteran, you know, why would they block Rio Ruiz? And I'm like, well, actually, Franco's 28 and Rio Ruiz is 27. So maybe we're not blocking anybody. <laughs> And maybe Rio Ruiz needs to be blocked uh, at some point. You know, he, he's had a, what a two twenty lifetime batting average, expected two forty four, a little bit of power, but not much more than Michael Franco. Really, I was looking at Franco's power index lines, and he's you know flirted around ninety five, hundred. He sank to eighty three, I think, back a couple of years ago, but pretty much around that one hundred league average level. The interesting thing about him is his hard contact index. While he's making a lot more contact, as you mentioned, than the average bear uh, in the mid to low 80s, his hard contact index has always flirted around league average again, which is an indication that while he's making a lot of contact, maybe the hard contact is a little bit lacking. That's exactly right. Looking at his hard hit rates, they seem to bounce around between 28 and 32%, 33%, which is nothing great, and and he's got a bit of a... uh, you know, he's also got a bit of a ground ball tilt, you know, getting in the upper 40s for ground ball rates. So, you know, even though there's a fair amount of contact, you know, he's not fast enough to beat out ground balls. So there's, no, you know, there's not a lot of productive contact there, which is what exactly what HCTX is capturing. You know, the other thing about Franco and Ruiz is that, you know, there's theoretically the opportunity for a platoon there. Franco's righty and Ruiz is lefty. But really, the funny thing is neither one of their career splits support a platoon. Franco pretty much doesn't have a split. Uh, and Ruiz is a you know for a left-handed batter has actually been more effective against lefties than righties. So that's not where this is going. But you know, there's uh, you know there's still some moving parts in Baltimore with the DH and with uh, you know I don't think either one of these guys want to masquerade in the outfield, but maybe moving over to first base and Mancini going back to the outfield from time to time. They may find both of themselves in the lineup on some days. Baltimore also placed uh, incumbent closer Hunter Harvey on the 60-day injured list. He has an oblique injury, a 60-day uh, injured list stint for an oblique injury. That must be some injury. Uh, anyhow, it prompts more reductions in his projected innings and saves. And how does it affect the race for the few saves that are likely to be had in Baltimore? In the land of the blind. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you know, let's talk about Harvey first, actually, because I, I, like you, I was a little struck by the 60-day DL for an oblique. And that strikes me as a little bit more of a development sort of decision as much as the injury itself. I mean, unless it's a very severe oblique pull or tear, which it didn't sound like it was, uh, you know, that might they might just be being cautious with Harvey and I, I, it occurred to me that the lack of a minor league season until May plays into this, that they're not going to, they don't want to take him from and, you know, make him do his rehab at an alternate site and come right back to Baltimore. So by, you know, essentially canceling him, uh, you know, his, his ability to pitch in the month of May, they basically set him up for May in the minors to be his rehab stint. And certainly after a full month of being shut down, waiting for minor, the minor leagues to start, he will, 
likely need to you know, ramp up from scratch with a with a full st- spring training. I never really think relievers need five or six weeks of spring spring training to throw one inning at a time. But you know, if they're worried, if they want to make sure that this issue is completely cleaned up, it, uh, you know, upon further reflection, it didn't seem that unreasonable. So who's going to get the closing gig while he's out? He, it might be Tanner Scott, uh, who is sort of an interesting candidate. He's got a solid good ground ball profile, throws a pretty good slider that ends up getting uh, a good clip of strikeouts. So he struck out 30% of the batters he faced in 2018 and 2019, which is pretty cool. Uh, so you mixed out with ground balls and you've got the building blocks of something, but the good news sort of stops there. Uh, you know, he gives, tends, tends to give up a lot of uh, a lot of hard contact. It sounds like that's, you know, which kind of makes me think that slider ends up getting hung a little more than you like. He also walks back quite a bit of batters, uh, so gives up some big OBPs. You know, 402 last year is, you know, is a bad number. Uh, so a stopgap here, I don't think he's really the long-term answer. And they have some other candidates. There's Cole Sulzer and Paul Fry hanging around. Fry has, you know, a smattering of saves in his career. Also, remarkably, took nine relief losses back in 2019, which is uh, which is not easy to do. Um, and, then there's, and then there's Cesar Valdez, who is interesting in the sense that you know, he doesn't look like he should even be in this discussion. He's a journeyman 36-year-old who's really, you know, just knocked around. And, you know, if you look at our player link page, you know, just to summarize journeyman, he's got entries for 2010, 2017, both of which he had an ERA over seven. And then last year in the short season, he hung up a 126 ERA in, in all of 14 innings. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But, the, but it, there's actually something behind that. He apparently did pick up a, uh, I think what he calls a dead fish changeup, uh, almost like a, uh, sounds to me like a, like a knuckle change or like a no spin sort of thing, which uh, was super effective for all of 14 innings last year. So remains to be seen if he actually remembers how to throw that in camp again and can make it effective. But there's at least some reason to think he's not the, uh, he's not quite the journeyman. Man, it must be pretty frustrating in a career to finally figure out an out pitch at age 35, right? <laughs> no kidding. And what surprised me the same as you is that you look at his record and from 2012 to 16, Ray, nothing. Really? Not even the Mexican League or something? I just assumed he was somewhere around the globe. Nothing that I could find anyway. I got to admit, I didn't look Amazing. too hard. It, was, it wasn't like this guy's <laughs> way up on the top of my priority list as a sleeper. Uh, speaking of priority lists, however, in Toronto, the fireballing prospect Nate Pearson, he of the 100-plus-mile-an-hour fastball, was ticketed this season for a spot in the Jays' rotation, and everybody knew it, but then he got a groin strain, then he tried to kind of ease his way back in. Then he aggravated the groin strain this week that had hobbled him. Uh, the club says Ross Stripling is going to get Pearson's rotation spot, at least for now. Phil Hertz, once again on this story, any interest in Ross Stripling to open the season? Yeah, you know, Phil covered this, like you said, with sort of the, I, I, I guess it's the first recurrence of the groin strain because he was carrying it forward from last year, right? But then, you know, back last week, you know, the, he... You know, he tweaked it again, and that was when Phil wrote it up. And as you said, the the news has gotten even worse since then. And it sounds like Pearson might be out until May. So this is uh, this is a, cl- a clearly open door for yeah. It looks like Stripling right now. You know, if you remember, you know, Stripling was sort of the sixth or seventh starter with the Dodgers for a number of years running there before coming over to Toronto. Uh, they have other candidates. There's Anthony Kay, Trent Thornton. 
Tyler Chatwood, who I thought was going to be in some sort of multi-inning relief role. He could be an opener or a tag team starter or, you know, the Jays could do all sorts of uh, creative stuff like that. But if it's an actual starter, yeah, I think it's probably Stripling, which is okay. Uh, Stripling has, you know, got knocked around last year with a 584 ERA and a 1.5 whip, which is pretty bleak. But like I said, his, you know, his prior four years, you know, with the Dodgers were, you know, four straight years of part-time work in the, you know, 70 to 120 inning range, all with ERAs under four. And most of the time with expected ERAs under four too. So, I mean, there's a, there's a good pitcher in there somewhere. We just didn't see it last year. 2018, he pitched 122 innings, a 302-119, which is pretty darn good. You know, I, I know it's only in uh, in limited innings, 122 of them in, in that season, but that's not nothing. It's a $12 season for Ross Stripling, and, you know, we say at Baseball HQ, once you display a skill or a set of skills, you own them until you kind of show us otherwise, and there might be some some profit here. Yeah, I'll be curious to see if, you know, I haven't even gotten back to check in the last week or so, but I would be curious to see if his ADP is rising or if or how or how much and whether he's still flying under the radar. Because because yeah, I mean he's only thirty one, and you know I'm as we've said before, I'm sort of the self appointed king of giving out twenty twenty mulligans, and this looks like as good a candidate as any. If we treated him as the guy we saw from twenty seventeen to nineteen, who suddenly just walked into a rotation spot in Toronto, not only is he by far the best equipped person to fill in that open rotation spot for the first month of the season, but if he pitches like he did for twenty seventeen to nineteen, they are not taking him out of this rotation. And speaking of Under the Radar, on the Under the Radar podcast that The Athletic puts out, I heard Derek Van Riper, who was on this show a week or two ago, mentioned that whoever gets that fifth starter spot in Toronto, in the first few weeks of the season for the Blue Jays, the fifth starter figures to get starts in Texas, where it's actually a fairly friendly pitcher's ballpark now with the new place, in Kansas City, and we know about Kansas City's offense, everybody's talking about this is the year that it changes, but it doesn't look like it, and in Boston, and manages to miss the Yankees. So uh, there might be a sneaky path to getting a few early wins from Ross Stripling, supposing he's the guy, even if you think you have to cut him after that because the schedule gets tougher but you know you, when you look at three starts against relatively weak opponents another little reason to maybe sneak that guy in and uh, with the expectation that you might have to drop him but to take your three wins and run yeah that's good news in in two contexts not only is it the quality of the opposition offense but you mentioned that all three of those games are on the road, which means he's avoiding pitching in Dunedin, which we're widely expecting to be some some sort of a launching pad. So, yeah, that's uh, about as good a start as you could hope for to the season. And again, that you know that really just kind of paves the road for Stripling to get back to his prior skill levels and just stake a claim to a uh, a longer term hold on a rotation spot. To your point, you may not want to ride him that long, but you know he might be a uh, you know in a trading league, he might be a great guy to trade after uh, start number three or four later in April. And depending on how he looks, maybe a streaming option throughout the year. You know, obviously if he comes up against a a, a really good offense, you just say I'll put a middle reliever into that 
a roster slot on my team for the for the week, and we'll just figure it out from there. In Boston, your neck of the woods, Ray Chris Olson reported in Playing Time today that newly arrived outfielder Franchi Cordero, the Red Sox have a lot riding on Franchi's performance, but he's behind in camp because he took a while getting there. COVID protocols uh, got in the way. What does Franchi Cordero's delay mean for the opening day lineup in the Red Sox outfield, especially if he can't go? Yeah, so if he can't go, there's going to be a few dominoes that have to shift around. It's going to be Alex Verdugo moving over to center field from left. He's sort of the backup center fielder on the roster now, which frees up left field. And Alex Cora had some comments that he would be comfortable dropping uh, you know, newly acquired super utility man Marwin Gonzalez into left field for opening day if Franchi wasn't there. You know, that's not his only option, but it's the one he called out. You know, there could be some J.D. Martinez out there as well, especially at home in Fenway, where left field isn't that challenging. Martinez has said that he sort of felt like he got a little, uh, you know, stiff and stagnant DHing all the time and is campaigning to, you know, make at least periodic appearances in left field to, uh, you know, sort of paradoxically help him stay healthy, but okay. Um, and then, <laughs> you know, there, there's also uh, Kiki Gonzalez, who is, you know, penciled in second base, but is also equipped to play either left field or center field, which could free up second base for um, Michael Chavez or, you know, and whoever the other utility infielders are to make the roster. The interesting thing in that is J.D. Martinez possibly getting some gains in left field. It won't wouldn't take too long for him to acquire the eligibility right now, DH only under most league setups that I'm aware of. And as soon as he gets that outfield eligibility, it certainly creates a bit more roster flexibility for fantasy teams, which adds uh, should add a dollar or two to hit the value of his stats as we go into auctions and drafts towards this part of the draft season. That's right. He's, his ADP is very, very close to Nelson Cruz's. In fact, on a draft board I saw the other day, they were actually right next to each other. But you know, Cruz obviously is going to be a DH all year long, and you're right that Martinez at least has a chance to pick up the outfield eligibility. I would say it's pretty likely in five game eligibility leagues. Might even be that might even happen fairly early. Ten gamers, I you know, I I would imagine it would take a little while if he gets there at all. Probably have to wait to get it to the bulk of the interleague schedule and that sort of thing. But there's a, there's at least a chance if you're picking up Martinez with the DH eligibility that you're only stuck with it for a month or half the season, depending on whether you're five or 10 games. And as you said, if your alternative is Nelson Cruz, you know you're not getting any uh, additional eligibility there. Uh, moving along, uh, playing time tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com is a kind of a news analysis column that has the analysts covering the divisions of Major League Baseball. They take a little bit of a deeper dive, a little bit more of a look at how the rosters are shaking out based on the news rather than just the individual news items that we cover in playing time today. And uh, Jock Thompson uh, used to do your job here at Baseball HQ Radio up till last year, uh, covers the American League West in playing time tomorrow. And there's some interesting spring training battles coming down to which combatant still has minor league options, something that you always have to keep in 
the back of your mind. And we'll start in Texas at first base. Uh, Ronald Guzman has been a disappointment to 30 BA in uh, his career so far. Not a lot of power. And last season in the short season, a 243 batting average, four home runs and 78 at bats. That's about 25 homers in a full season. Still not the kind of power I think they were hoping for. So they go and bring in Nate Lowe, seemingly to take over. But in spring training so far, Ronald Guzman seems to be saying, hey, not so fast. Yeah, it's it's interesting because Guzman to me is, you know, sort sort of back to the joke we were making about Rio Ruiz a little while ago. You know, Guzman, you know, strikes me as the you know failed prospect. Why are we still go? Why are we still dying on this hill? Sort of thing. But he is only twenty six still, as it turns out. And you know, he's gotten a couple of looks the last few years in Texas, and they haven't gone well. But that's not you know he wouldn't be the first person for things to just sort of snap into place at age twenty six and. As you say, the early spring training signs are positive. He's, I mean, you know, it's tiny sample size, but he's eight for 23 with a couple of home runs, four walks to four strikeouts. So that's an OPS over 11, over 1100 and a one to one walk to strikeout ratio. That's what you want to see to the extent that, you know, we can read anything at the spring training stats. You know, he's, he's acquitting himself well and Lowe is not. Lowe is three for 21. Uh, he's, and he struck out 10 times in 23 plate appearances. So there's a, you know, it, there, there's as stark a difference in performance as you can get in 20 something plate appearances. And as you said, the other key factor here is that they can send low to the alternate site or to AAA in May, and they can't do that with Guzman. He's out of options. So leg up for Guzman, it seems like, if he can run through the finish line for the next couple of weeks, it seems like the, the job is there for him to take. When we're considering minor league options, of course, you have to also consider the likelihood that if the Rangers decided that they wanted to send Guzman down, he'd have to clear waivers. But I can't see a huge lineup forming amongst major league general managers to grab Ronald Guzman based on his track record to date, unless they're no, impressed by not. his it's, training. It, you, you would think not, but it's a risk. It's a risk that the Rangers would have to take that with Guzman, whereas there's no risk to low, they can freely move him up and down. What about the uh, possibility that some one of the two of them ends up getting any time somewhere else in the uh, on the field? Yeah, J- Jock pointed out that Guzman has made several spring appearances in left field, probably just as a exercise to get both these guys in the lineup and get them their plate appearances. I had a game on MLB Network uh, one afternoon last week where Guzman was in right field and. Yeah, that did not go well. So um, I, I don't think either one of them is a real realistic option there. You know, neither one of them has any significant experience there. And let's not forget the Rangers have, you know, all sorts of depth of various qualities and ages clogging up the corner outfields in the DH spot between Willie Calhoun, David Dahl, Chris Davis. Uh, you know, you know Calhoun, Calhoun might be running a little bit behind too. So maybe there's a, a first week opportunity there or something like that. But there's not. Doesn't seem like there's a there's there's a way to get Guzman and Low into the lineup concurrently for more than you know a couple of days at the start of the season. That's right, and you've also got uh, Joey Gallo looks ticketed for pretty much full time in the outfield. Leody Tavares is going to get a lot of time out there unless his hitting continues to uh, struggle. And then they've got a bunch of other lesser options out there. So, yeah, I thought when I first read that, I thought Jock was right on the money that you know it might be fun for Texas to try this, but. 
you know, playing the major league outfield is not a light thing to consider, especially in Texas where you got to do a lot of running around and getting into the gaps and stuff like that to protect your pitchers. Uh, in Los Angeles, the Angels infield starters look all set, but there's nonetheless an infield job battle brewing for the backup role between a couple of interesting guys, Ray Franklin Barreto and Luis Rangifo, and it looks like who has the options might again be the deciding factor. What's the details there? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, it's the context matters too. This to me is a little more than a backup infield job just because of the way the Angels have sort of you know weighed things out here. This is you know, the, the, this is the gig that was Tommy Listella's until the trade deadline last year. And, you know, they're a little, they're, they're kind of all set around the, the infield with Fletcher at second. And now Jose Iglesias is taking Simmons's place at short. And of course, Anthony Rendon entrenched at third, but there, there are some paths here. You know, Fletcher can move around to the outfield on occasion. Don't forget that, you know, there's the dynamic of some days Otani is not going to be available to DH because of the pitching and Albert Pujols is, you know, continuing to decline at first base and may actually play himself out of an everyday role at some point. So th- there are multiple paths for one of these guys to get into the lineup, probably most often at second base with Fletcher being the, the Swiss army knife. But, but this is more than, you know, who's the 200 at bat middle infielder here. So, Getting in between the into the two of them, you know, as you said, the options matter, and it's Barreto who's out of options, and Rangifo who still has some. Barreto is, you know, has come over from Oakland and has put up some really impressive minor league numbers that just flat out have not carried over yet. There was a uh, back in 2019, obviously, in the last full season of the minors, you know, he was in AAA Las Vegas, which is a launching pad, but he put up 19 homers and 15 stolen bases in under 400 at bats. I mean, there's a, you know, the power speed temptation here has been there for a while. It just has not carried it over, carried over at all to the majors. And Rangifo, he's off to a fast start. Yeah, he's, he's doing better than they low in terms of the, you know, trying to stake his claim to a job. Uh, you know, he's doing his thing where he walk, you know, he, he, he's a contact speed guy and he's been, you know, showing off that skill, uh, he's been. He was off to a uh, a quick start in the minors. I think he's, uh, you know, it was three for eight early on. Now he's up to six for eighteen. So he's hitting. He's still hitting over three hundred. He's stolen a couple of bases. He hit a home run, which isn't really his game. And he's got the you know four walks to five strikeouts, which again is uh, you know showing good command of the strike zone. So he's. You know, as opposed to low, the guy, the guy who still has the options is at least making it tough to send him down. And you mentioned also Rangifo draws a lot of walks, but Ray, the power for Rangifo just not there. No, no, that's not his game at all. Like I said, he's a you know even at his best, he's a contact, and to be fair, contact on 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 base percentage. That's sort of his foundational skill, and you know the potential for some speed. Although we haven't really seen that carry over to the majors yet, Uh, so. You know, he draws blocks, he puts the ball in play, and, you know, he's sort of a David Fletcher kind of clone, but how many of those guys do you need in the lineup at the same time? And finally, uh, Jock Thompson in playing time tomorrow covered the Houston situation in their outfield. Miles Straw got a lot of playing time in 2020 because of all the injuries that Houston had, but he didn't do much with that opportunity. Uh, 5% walk rate, 73% contact rate, so he batted 207 for the year with a 244 on base percentage. 
I mean, a 244 batting average is poor. A 244 on base percentage is disastrous, especially for a guy whose main ticket to the big leagues has been his speed. But here we are in 2021. George Springer's off to Toronto or Dunedin or Buffalo or Timbuktu, and there in the outfield picture, Miles Straw turns up again. Uh, maybe the straw that stirs the drink. I don't know. The forecaster says a 30 stolen base upside for Miles Straw, so he has to be a factor in drafts, especially ale only. But what's going on here? Yeah, this is one of those things where you look at what the Astros did and you sort of have to draw some conclusions from it. Because like you said, there's just nothing coming off of what Straw did in 2020 that would make you think that, you know, he was ready to take over, you know, the lead in the center field job. I spent most of the, the, the late winter, really the month of February, just assuming that this was the most obvious landing spot for Jackie Bradley Jr. to sort of come in and take over the, the Springer role in center field and, and let Straw be a you know, fourth or fifth outfielder. But that didn't happen. And the Astros never even picked up a plan B or a hedge. So Straw's now the center fielder. And that just says to me that they think a heck of a lot more of them than he did last year. Because if they thought he was really a 244 OBP guy, he wouldn't be the opening day center fielder. So yeah, that 30, 30 stolen base upside looks kind of tempting now because the playing time is likely going to be there. We're currently projecting a you know, 248 batting average and a 310 OBP, which is a lot better than last year, but still not great. But you know, that comes out to, you know, with his established speed skill, that's enough for 27 stolen bases and 375 at bats. And given where he's going in drafts with an ADP way down, although it's rising lately, uh, you know, but he's a you know, south of round 15 guy. There's not, uh, there aren't a lot of other places down in the back half of a even a mixed league draft, let alone AL only, that you can turn for turn for cheap speed like that. We should point out, in fairness to Miles Straw, 2019 his on base percentage was close to 380. Very small number of at-bats, barely over 100, so 2020 just under 100. It's very hard to say which one of those is the real Miles Straw. The temptation is to split the difference. If you get a 380 guy with speed, that's quite something. If you get a 280 guy on base with speed, not so much. No, that's right. And he's they're not going to ask a ton of him. He'll probably be anchored down in the bottom of the lineup and maybe he'll even bat ninth and be the sort of second lead off guy and, and operate that way. And, you know, you, if you look around, like what, what's plan B here, like I said earlier, the only, the name that comes up is I think one that we talked talked about before, which is uh, Pedro Leon, who's a uh, Cuban prospect who they, who the uh, Astros signed in the off season, but you know, he, he hasn't played in a couple of years and, you know, obviously the transition to the U.S. is, you know, takes a little bit of time. So maybe this is a case where they're going to give Straw, pick a number, half a season, somewhere around that, and sort of see which Straw shows up. But then the backup plan, if he looks more like the 2020 version than the 2019 version, is that, you know, come summer, Leon might be ready. And there's another guy, uh, Chaz McCormick, a career sort of 360 OBP guy in the minors. He's 26 years old, and this is his first sniff of Major League. Uh, plate appearances, not a lot of anticipation there. No, not not for the short term, but you know, if something happens to Straw or if he really gets you know, slow out of the gate, then McC they, they, they could take a look at McCormick. That's a, like you said, that's a, you know, it's actually a pretty similar pro profile. It's a place where, 
Uh, he McCormick has shown at least some OB Peepers ability in the minors, so that's uh, that's not to be totally dismissed. I don't think he comes with the uh, he, he doesn't come with the same uh, speed upside though. And Ray, I'd like to close with something that isn't actually news so much as it is fun to speculate about. And you used to be the speculator columnist at Baseball HQ, so I think uh, we're on safe ground uh, going in this direction. This Bobby Witt in Kansas City has been lighting it up in spring training. And of course, he's very young and very uh, untested, but his terrific performance and his fantastic potential have now made the rounds in the news that the team is now publicly saying he might be in the opening day roster. Yeah, boy, this is just fascinating. I I, I sort of got dialed into this, I don't know, a week or 10 days ago, Jock, uh, Jock Thompson, our friend, and as you said, my predecessor in this role here, uh, he covers the Royals for us from the playing time perspective. And he added some playing time for wit to our projection system for this year. And I sort of immediately dropped him a note because I get an alert about that. That tells me that, okay, here's somebody who were projected for playing time. I need to actually generate a projection for them. And, you know, in the course of doing that a couple of times a week, I went through and I looked, re- refreshed myself on what's practically non-existent minor league history. He played 2019 in rookie ball and then spent 2020 at the alternate site. And Jock gave him a token 10, 15% playing time allocation. I forget whatever it was. It could suggest even a September call-up. September call-up, call yeah. You know, so I, I wrote to Jock and I said, are you serious? <laughs> no, no guy who you know has only played in rookie ball is going to get to the majors this year. And Jock said, hey, you know, I don't know. You may want to keep an eye on this one. I'm putting it there just to flag it for your attention. And, you know, Jock was sort of at the front of that. You know, like I said, this was all about 10 days ago. And then, as you said, Dayton Moore had the comments this week that they're giving him essentially a legitimate chance to make the roster. And my my first reaction, like I said, was that it sort of boggled my mind. But there are a couple of factors here that maybe make it less insane than I think. I'm wondering what you think. Well, I've drafted him in a couple of spots, so I think I'm hoping that that it turns out that this does happen. The young man seems to have an inordinate amount of talent in spring training so far. He's been very impressive. Apparently, he's got, what, three home runs already? He's at batting over 300, 350-ish on base percentage. I know some of this action, the naysayers always say, yeah, but he's who's he hitting against and all that kind of stuff. But Mike Matheny is not the kind of guy who's prone to giving lots of playing time to young guys like this, and he's playing this guy. And you've got to believe that the team is willing to look at him, and the general manager seems confident about him. The manager seems confident about him. Right now, I think I'd set the odds, and maybe this is self-serving because I do have him in a couple of rosters, but 60-40? I may not be there yet, but you know, I, I might be. I might be sixty forty the other way. I'm 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 ruling out it out less by the day. Uh, there there are sort of a couple of reasons for that in my mind. Uh, you know, somebody on Twitter, you know, when I sort of posted my initial skepticism to this, somebody responded and said, you know, it seems like the Royals really are trying to show themselves to be an organization that does things the right way. You think back to the way they were, I think, among the first teams to say that they were going to pay all their staff and minor leaguers during the pandemic last year. And they're they're trying to be, I, I think they're trying to sort of position themselves as a player-friendly organization. And, you know, this certainly, even if it's just lip service, goes 
a long way in that regard, you know, especially contrasted with the uh, the Seattle fiasco of a couple of weeks ago with their team president and the way they admitted they were going to be playing service time games with Kelnick. So this is sort of the other side of that spectrum. The, the other thing that comes to mind for me is that, you know, the, the obvious reason not to do this would be service time manipulation, or at least the fact that th- there's it's not hard to justify that he needs more seasoning heck in a ball or double a ball as opposed to the majors. And as a result, you keep control of him for a longer stretch of the peak of his career. We all know how that game works, but the flip side of that is with the CBA coming up, the, you know, the Royals may have some inclination that by the time Witt reaches free agency currently six years from now, but who knows when in the, in the new system that maybe this won't matter, or maybe it won't be entirely by games played in their rookie year that decide service time. So maybe the usual counter arguments don't apply here. I don't know. And I don't even know. I don't think I'm up to 60, 40 the way you are, but if I was, you know, 10, 90, the first time I heard this, I'm, I'm at least up to, 3070 against now and if you know obviously the biggest factor here is going to be whether wit keeps hitting over the next two weeks and sort of knocks the door down right well exactly and the other thing you have to consider is who are the obstacles to playing time for wit uh, at shortstop they have adalberto mondesi we've talked here on baseball hq radio about mondesi the, he's been the subject of a lot of controversy because some tout experts have been saying that this is the kind of guy you need to avoid at all costs and some people have even said he could be in the minor leagues if he keeps having a 290 obp that makes him borderline useless and the second base guy, Nicky Lopez, also hasn't set the world on fire. So if he struggles coming out of the gate, if Mondesi struggles coming out of the gate, or they both struggle, where's the block to Bobby Witt? Hanser Alberto? Yeah, it, it, it's not exactly uh, a couple of Hall of Famers that he's displacing here who might, who might get Wally pipped by him. Uh, you know, it, it, is, it is interesting, too, though, because it's either a... St- I can't figure out how much of it is a statement about how special wit is or just deferential to Mondesi that they're talking about him moving to second base or even maybe, maybe playing some third base with Hunter Dozier going back, you know, moving around, going back to the outfield. Uh, But it seems like the only thing that would be worse than pushing wit too fast would be to bring him up to the majors as a 21 year old with no experience above a ball. Oh, and ask him to learn a new position at the time. I mean, it would seem to me if you're going to do this, you do this with putting wood at shortstop and make Mondesi the one who sucks it up and moves, but maybe just because they don't want to you know, get Mondesi into that mode just yet. They haven't gone there, but if I, if it were me, I would, you know, which my shortstop in the future, he might as well, the minute he gets called up, he might as well be the shortstop. And one last factor I think we have to bear in mind is it's got to be fairly tough to sell tickets to a newly returning crowd. Uh, We hope this summer in Kansas City, like elsewhere, with the COVID restrictions being lifted. What do you, if you're the Kansas City marketing manager and you look at this roster, uh, who do you put on the ads? Yeah, this guy, right? Well, yeah, if you can, right? The minute he's in town. (laughs) And he's, he's a bright, shiny new toy. The Kansas City baseball public has looked at who we've got on this roster for the most part over the last couple of years. I mean, they could point to Ben and comes in, uh, you know, with a Boston cachet, whatever that is. Carlos Santana is a pretty established veteran, and they can say, "Look, we got Carlos Santana." But really, are you selling a lot of baseball tickets saying, "Look, we got Carlos Santana"? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it would sell concert tickets, but I'm not so sure about baseball tickets. Mm-hmm. 
No, it's true. And, you know, they have some good young pitching, too. I mean, Brittany Singer you know, turned a lot of heads last year, and there's more pitching on the way, and Daniel Lynch and Asa Lacey. But, you know, from the marketing perspective, it's tough to build a marketing campaign around the pitching staff because, you know, they don't all pitch every day. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, and, and that, that's just my point. They have very little to sell, and Bobby Witt, if he could be put on the roster justifiably because he, they don't want to put him on there to fail just because they think they can sell a few tickets. But, you know, if this kid comes out of spring training having hit nine, ten home runs, driven in a whole pile, played some pretty good defense, I can see that the marketing guy's going to be in that meeting going, for the love of heaven, can we possibly get this guy on the roster so I can sell some season tickets? Oh, yeah. The, min- the minute he gets called up, he is the face of the franchise, right? Exactly. So uh, the face of the Baseball HQ franchise, Ray Murphy, thanks for helping us out. We'll talk to you again in a week. Awesome. Thank you, PD. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Next up, it's our HQ Spotlight segment, where we talk some baseball with one of the staff analysts and writers at Baseball HQ. We'll have Market Pulse and Big Hurt columnist Matt Cedarholm coming up to the plate in just a second. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Matt Dodge looks at the pitching rotations in all five teams of the American League Central. In alternative gaming, analyst Matt Beagle is back with his 2021 Points League draft guide, following up last week's hitters with this week's pitcher assessments. And in the GM's office, Baseball HQ co-general manager Ray Murphy presents the annual HQ preseason staff survey. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt, and of course, that groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like player projections updated every day and daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers to get you through the long fantasy season. You add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And it's all why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our HQ Spotlight, where we introduce a staff analyst and writer from Baseball HQ. And it's my pleasure to welcome Matt Cedarholm, the Market Pulse and Big Hurt columnist at the site. Matt, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been quite a while. Uh, Yeah, I think last season we we did an episode together, but I think uh, nothing since then. This is a bit different. I think we were talking in more depth then about your work, especially with the Big Hurt, but... uh, Maybe we could start off. We're just trying to introduce all the analysts at Baseball HQ to the Baseball HQ radio audience. So how did you get started with Baseball HQ? How'd you get involved? Well, I think like a lot of the, the writers here, um, I started as a subscriber, um, following it for a few years. And then uh, there was a call for writers. Um, they asked, you know, a lot, you know, some basic questions. What, you know, how, how long you've been playing? You know what's what formats do you play and then then they asked for a writing sample and and they liked what i said well enough to hire me on as a writer um my first uh the funny thing is my very first piece for baseball hq uh 
one subscriber replied with an email to the uh, general manager saying, Matt Cedarholm is an idiot. And, <laughs> um, I, and, and, so your and true self came through in the writing. That's good. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, so, so I actually reached out to the guy, we talked a little bit and, he, and it just turned out he had kind of completely misunderstood the thrust of my piece. But uh, uh, yeah, it was, uh, um, it was, it was an interesting introduction uh, to the world of publishing. Uh, you know, to, one of one of the one of the rules is no matter what you say, somebody's not going to like it. So, did you have a background in writing when you uh, applied to Baseball HQ? Uh, no, not really. Um, you know, my my background is mainly finance, uh, finance and economics. Um, so the you know the mathematical side of things, and 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 you know the back then it was the Lima plan was the big thing. Um, and and the, the skills we used seem very rudimentary compared to what we're looking at today with Stackcast and all that. But um, you know that always appealed to me. And I, I mean, I've I've had experience writing in school and for work and things, but never you know anything that could be considered publishing. Well, you do a terrific job of it. So congratulations on that. Uh, so you, do you remember what the sort of track of the roles that you've had at Baseball HQ was? What did you start doing and how did you work your way up to your current role as a dual columnist? Yeah, so I started uh, writing strategy pieces. Um, my The first piece was, uh, the premise was that in an auction league, position scarcity really doesn't matter very much. Um, I've, I, I've haven't, I wouldn't say I've changed that. Uh, I, I, uh, I approach that strategy a little differently now than simply ignoring position scarcity. But the point was, you know, whether, whether you pay, um, whether, whether you get 20 home runs from a shortstop or 20 home runs from a first baseman doesn't really matter. Uh, unlike straight drafts where, you know, your end game is usually first baseman and outfielders are the best hitters. Um, in an auction draft, the end game is, is, Maybe the same way, but you're still only paying a buck or two for those players. Um, so I wrote strategy pieces for a while and then um, did a couple of research pieces. And then um, Matt Beagle, I don't know if anyone remembers Matt, uh, used to write the Market Pulse column. And he needed to, um, he was going to continue doing the preseason Market Pulse, but he couldn't do it during the season. So they asked me if I could take that over, and, and I did, and then Matt decided he needed even more time. So then I started doing the full season market pulse. Um, and about three years ago, um, it, you know, market pulse in during the season is, is really hard to write because uh, basically you're, you're, the main thing you're doing is looking for unowned players who might have some value. Um, but, you know, the fact is most of the really good players, the market has figured out. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work and, um, it was kind of just time for somebody else to take that over. So I continued on with the preseason market pulse, doing some research pieces, uh, filling in for like facts and flukes. Um, and then, um, Rick Wilton had stepped down, uh, everyone, hopefully everyone remembers Dr. E. Uh, Rick had stepped down from, you know, doing a full-time thing. And so there was really a need for somebody to do injury analysis. And I think we went a whole season with nobody in that role. And I approached uh, Brent and Ray and said, you know, this is something that's been sort of a hobby of mine for a while. And uh, I said, you know, I, if, you, if you're interested, I can 
you know, maybe pick up the uh, injury analysis part for HQ. And so that's where I am now writing the, the market pulse during, uh, in the preseason and the uh, injury column, the big hurt uh, during the season. In the market pulse, the spring training analysis, you're going through them position by position. Uh, what are you watching for when you look at the spring training situation and these analyses? So, yeah, I mean, the first thing that, and, and you know, we, we put this warning in the column every week just to make sure people understand. What we're really looking at is players where there's a big difference in valuation between mar- the market, usually represented by ADP, and baseball HQ. Um, so I'm looking for, um, you know, trying, trying to look at things that uh, maybe the market as a whole is overlooking, um, you know, understanding how Baseball HQ does our projections, looking at that process and saying, you know, where where would the market look at this player differently? You know, maybe maybe uh, the guy had a, a horrible batting average last year, and that's scaring people away. Uh, but then I'll look at the XBA and I'll look at StatCast and I'll say, well, he was really unlucky, you know, 220 BABIP or, or you know, something like that. Um, I, I, in terms of spring training performance, I don't, um, I try not to look at that too much because, you know, it's 90% noise, right? Um, um, but I'm, I'm looking at usually history, um, uh, in, you know, is there an injury that might explain a player's poor performance? Um, or is it just simply that, you know, um, I think Kyle Hendricks is a good example. He's a boring player not great strikeout totals. And I think uh, a lot of fantasy GMs tend to overlook him um, and he drops a lot farther than he probably should. Um, even though he's a pretty good pitcher, he just doesn't you know, get you the strikeouts. Well, you mentioned the noise. I was going to ask how do you, and by extension, fantasy managers allow for those small samples, the variable competition levels, you got the team and player interviews, guys just talking about themselves or talking about their pitchers and all that other kind of noise. How do you allow for that in spring training performances? You can't look at the performance, right? You can't look at a guy, oh, he hit nine home runs in spring training. He's going to have a big year um, because there are a lot of other factors, small samples. Uh, you know, he could have hit most of those home runs off of, you know, double A and triple A pitchers. Um I think if you look at the skills and players that show a significant change in skills, um, you know, pitchers whose velocity is up and, you know, I'm talking like up by you know, a couple of miles per hour, you know, really significant velocity change. Um, pitchers who might have added a pitch that seems to be very effective. One of the best tools is baseballreference.com has spring training statistics. And it actually shows you in the spring training statistics it shows you an estimate of the level of competition the player has faced during spring training. It's called opponent quality. Uh, I think like an eight or above is is kind of a major league quality. So if, so if you look at a guy and his, uh, you know, his strikeout percentage has gone from 22% to 31% during the spring, and then you go and check his page in baseball reference and see that, you know, his opponent quality is, you know, five and a half. You say, well, I mean, yeah, the guy's been facing... Um, you know, a lot of minor league hitters. And so you can't really trust that. And then, you know, maybe if it's higher, like an eight and a half, you could say, okay, well, he's been getting a lot of strikeouts against good hitters. You mentioned earlier that uh, doing the in-season work became quite onerous. Are you doing any market analysis in-season uh, this no, year? No, that's uh, Brad Coleman. 
uh, does the in-season market pulse, and I focus on the the big hurt, which is which is a lot of work in itself because we do updates three times a week. But it's it's it, it's it's more. It, there's more time involved, but it's um, it's a different kind of thinking. So it's uh, it feels easier to me than than market pulse was. Although market doing the market pulse was a lot of fun. The most recent Market Pulse edition that you have out actually drops on today. We're talking on Friday, March 19th, uh, is the all-value team. And this is uh, an exercise you guys have gone through. You and your predecessors have gone through low these many years. And basically, you're looking at position by position the very best of the value propositions, as you described earlier. Uh, How does that work? How do you choose one player versus another? Is it just strictly who's the highest difference the biggest delta um mostly yeah so so the all value team is kind of kind of the signature piece of the preseason and it's you know what if what if baseball hq is right about all of our players where we disagree with the market um and so it's a roster of 23 players um and you know usually we end up getting you know in dollar terms you know 325 350 dollars worth of value or less than two hundred dollars at auction, so it's so it's uh, um, it's it's quite a good um, value, as it were. Um, I I do look at you know the most important factor is is how much more the player's value is from Baseball HQ versus what the the cost is in the market. Um, I I do look at things like reliability and injuries. Um, I, I try to avoid any players with bad injury histories because that's, first of all, that's a very good reason to value a player less than what his uh, production would be in a full season. Um, and I try to uh, eliminate those guys. Uh, sometimes it's it's easier, sometimes it's more difficult, but those are really the main factors is how much of a value is is the player and are there any significant risk factors that that we should probably uh, not choose this player because he's just too risky. One of the names that jumped off the list this season, Matt, is Brian Reynolds, the outfielder in Pittsburgh. What do you like about him? Uh, so uh, let me say, first of all, I, um, a- as much as possible, I am trying to ignore 2020. Um, it's, you know, it was less than a half season of of baseball. And I, I look at it this way. You know, if you look at a player on June 1st, and say, you know, uh, if you're going to make a lot of concrete decisions about a player based on what he's doing on June 1st, I think most fantasy GMs would realize that's a that's a really small sample, and there's a lot that can happen. I, uh, one of my favorite examples is uh, Jose Ramirez in 2019. Uh, on June 1st, he was hitting 213 with four home runs, and he finished the season at 255 with 23 home runs. So, still wasn't a great season for him based on, you know, I mean, he was a probably a first round pick for most places, but uh, June 1st is not the best time to make uh, definitive decisions. And that's basically what we have with Brian Reynolds. Um, you know, he, um, his, his contact rate was way down um, and his, uh, but his power was good. He still hit, I mean, he's not a, not a powerful hitter, but he's average, slightly above average. Um and, and if you look at his contact rate, it was basically um, by September, he was back to what he had done in 2019. So, you know, that again, that doesn't guarantee anything, but it tells me that, you know, maybe 
uh, you know, with COVID and the, and the, you know, that, that break they had between spring training and getting back up, maybe it just took him a little bit of time to get back into his groove. And, you know, so I, I think, um, there's good reason to think that you're seeing much more closer to 2019 in terms of his production than what he did last year. Another name on your list, and this is something that might surprise a lot of people, Miami infielder, I guess he's the shortstop for now, Miguel Rojas. Yeah. So uh, Rojas is interesting. I, I, for most of his career, he was a backup. I mean, he did get um, probably about three quarters time uh, in the couple of years before 2020. Um, I just think, and, and he's not, I mean, he's not a great hitter, but he's a decent hitter and he's got some speed and, um, and he's got a full-time job and, and, you know, any, any decent player getting five fifty five hundred and fifty five hundred seventy five 575 at bats is going to produce. Um, so I just think, I think for so long, I think he's 31, 32 years old. Uh, for so long, he was a backup. He was an end gamer. He was a guy you picked up on fab. If your shortstop got hurt and you could fill a hole for a couple of weeks, he's kind of, um, he, he, he's kind of gone beyond that a little bit. He, he's now a full-time player and, uh, you know, I don't think his, his skills have gotten a lot better, but, uh, given his full-time role and the fact that he does have, um, decent skills. I think he's, he's a valuable player to pick up and he's going really, really cheaply. On the pitching side, the name that jumped out at me here was Charlie Morton in Atlanta. And the reason was his, by auction value, his stats are actually very profitable based on what the market is paying. But by ADP, uh, Baseball HQ is actually below him. In the in the market, how did that happen? We come up with what's called the average auction value, and it's based on some research that Baseball HQ did about five six years ago. And so, it's not a hundred percent perfect in terms of where you know a player might have a slightly higher auction value and a slightly lower ADP. And you know, the other thing with ADP is players go all over the place; they tend to get grouped. So, you know, you might get a, a string of 20, 25 players by ADP who are virtually the same, but still have slightly different, um, dollar values. So, um, yeah, he's, uh, um, he's what I would call a minor value. Um, one thing I will say about, uh, whether it was a, an effective 2020 or not, um, the, the all value team this year, it was a little more difficult to find, uh, really good values. You know, it, you know, Morton, um, Morton's one of those who, you know, there's a small difference. So he's still, is perhaps being a little undervalued by the market. Um, but um, no, he, he's, he's, he was also interesting because I think he's got the worst health rating of any player on the all value team. He was a, he was a D health. Um, but um, I, you know, I, I still think he's, uh, he's a guy that, um, that the market is still underlooking just a little bit. And Trevor May of the Mets, another guy that I really like. I've picked him up in a couple of drafts so far this season, and that's not even allowing for the possibility that Edwin Diaz uh, stinks or gets hurt, and Trevor May is the likely uh, inheritor of the role. Even without that, Trevor May is a really good value for an endgame player. Yeah, I, you know, May, May is the kind of player I love where um, he has a lot of value even if nothing changes with his role. Um but he has the potential, you know. You know, any any reliever. Um, this is this is a a potential 
where he could get into the closer role. I, you know, I, I don't know what the Mets are thinking. He could be second on the on the depth chart. He could be fourth. They've got a lot of really good relievers um, in New York. So, uh, but he, but even if he, even if he never saves a game with his with his strikeout rates and his and his, um, you know, what you would expect for ERA and WHIP. Um, he's, he's a guy who has value, even if he's not closing, um, especially if, and, and, you know, again, I said, ignore 2020, and I certainly didn't include this in my analysis, but, uh, his 40% strikeout rate last year was, uh, um, pretty, um, pretty ridiculous. Um, you know, if he can come anywhere close to that, uh, he's going to be, uh, uh, just a fantastic reliever to own. Um, and probably better than a lot of the fourth and fifth starters you might pick up at the back end of your pitching staff. You also write the big hurt column, as you mentioned earlier. This is an injury analysis column three times a week. My curiosity about injuries is how do you calibrate the seriousness of an injury and its effect on playing time? How does that equation work for you? Yeah, so uh, I, I've always said that that big hurt is um, a lot of art and a lot of science. You know, you need to understand the science. You need to understand, you know, what what injuries mean, how long they take to heal, whether they tend to linger or tend to get better. Um, but it's also a lot of art. It's a lot of detective work because you know nobody's posting MRIs or X-rays online, so you can actually go and look and see what exactly is going on with the player. Um, a good example was uh, Carlos Carrasco. Um, uh, a few days ago, he hurt his hamstring. All we heard is that it was injured. And then yesterday, a report came out that said he had a tear. So any any sort of strain or pull in a muscle is a tear. It's just how, you know, what degree. When I read that, I said, okay, if they're calling it a tear, it probably means it's a more serious injury, like a grade two um, strain rather than a grade one. And uh, the news actually came out this morning that it was a grade two strain. So that's, um, that's an example where you kind of have to read between the lines and try to understand the extent of a player's injury. Um, and then it depends, it really depends on the injury. A muscle injury like that can tend to linger because the player starts to feel better before the muscles fully healed. Uh, so it's one reason you see, especially with like hamstrings and quads and calf strains, um, you'll see a player come back and then within a week or so he's hurt it again. Um, and that's because, you know, probably a week or two after he's pain free is when the muscle has completely healed. Uh, so you, so you just need to understand the, the various types of injuries and, you know, broken bone, once the bone's healed, in most cases, the player is good to go and, you know, there's not going to be uh, any lingering effects. Um, you know, a, a muscle injury like that is is a little bit different where there are. So, um, like I said, part art, part science. And if I remember my basic science from the last time we talked, a sprain is a tear of a ligament and a strain is a muscle or tendon? Yeah, a sprain would be ligament. Or, now, sprain is usually a ligament Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, you had it right. Um, yeah, uh, um, and and the and the terms are sometimes used interchangeably. Um, and and the the key thing to remember, whether it's a sprain or a strain, is there's some soft tissue that has been torn. Uh, you know, people will say strain and tear as if they're different things. They're really not. It's the same injury. It's just 
how much is torn, how much damage is there to the, to the muscle or the ligament or the tendon. Is there any sort of standard where a, an injury moves from being called a sprain or strain and starts being referred to entirely as a tear? Is it is a tear a, an established degree of seriousness worse than a strain or sprain? Uh, no, it's it's. I mean, I, I would say this is this is where the detective work comes in a little bit. If if the the team is calling it a tear, you can assume that it's maybe a bit worse than a minor strain. Um, but there's no standard. There's no medical standard that says, you know, grade one is a strain, grade two is a tear. Um, they're all, they're all even, even grade three, which is when the, the tissue is completely torn uh, into two pieces. Um, uh, it's still a strain. It's just a grade three strain. Um, you know, the terms tear and, and such are more colloquial. But grade one, grade two, grade three, these are things we can count on it with having a little bit more specificity or yeah, accuracy? Yeah, absolutely. Grade, grade one is a very minor tear. Um, grade two is when there's significant tearing, but the, but the muscle is still um, intact. And then grade three means a complete tear of the, of the muscle or ligament or tendon. And I guess that your injury databases would have recovery times for strains, sprains, tears, or grade one, two, three, probably a better way to say it uh, as far as in a particular joint if it's grade three it's going to be x number of months or years before it recovers and if it's grade one in a different joint it could be days or weeks yeah unfortunately the injury databases don't normally record what the grade is um but there's but there's a lot of research out there um you know you can you can find research papers that will you know we we tested the recovery time of different types of strains and um so, uh, yeah, the database will just say, you know, uh, you know, 15 day injured list, uh, hamstring strain, and it could be a grade one. It could be a grade three. Um, you can, you can go in and, um, and, and research give it certain injuries, uh, take some time though. Um, but yeah, there, but there's a lot of research, uh, that's been done in the, in the medical community. Um, and certainly, um, you know, things like hamstring strains. There are there have been a lot of cases, so they've got a pretty pretty well established um, uh, history of the different grades and how long they might take to heal. And I have to ask you, Matt, why are oblique injuries so often longer term than we would have expected, or more serious than we might have expected? And the recovery, the post recovery return to play, is often affected more than you might expect based on other injuries. These obliques seem to be a real problem for, for ball players. Yeah, I, I like to say obliques are stubborn. Um, it's, there are a couple of things. First, it's a, it's a, it's a fairly large muscle. So if, if you're going to tear that muscle, it requires a lot of force to tear, which means that the injury itself is going to be not necessarily more of a tear, but, um, but it, it's uh, because it's such a large muscle, uh, it means there was a great deal of force placed on that muscle to tear it in the first place. It's also, if you think about baseball, there's a lot of twisting in, involved in baseball, whether you're hitting or throwing the ball, um, you know, you're constantly rotating your, your trunk. Um, the oblique is a core muscle, um, not quite on the side. It's, it's sort of a, there's, it's called an oblique for a reason. It's kind of at an oblique angle. Um, to the to the uh, lats and the abdominal muscles, 
um, but it's it's more on the side. And so that twisting and turning motion that's required for both hitters and pitchers, um, you're, you're going to involve the oblique muscle. So, um, you know, hamstring strain is mostly going to affect you when you're running. Um, I guess for pitchers, it would affect you somewhat as well when you're pitching. But um, the oblique is something that uh, everyone engages uh, very frequently. Um, and, you know, both hitters and pitchers put a lot of violent force uh, on their core muscles as they're, as they're rotating. So um, it's a combination of just being a very big muscle and being a muscle that's very actively involved in baseball, no matter what you're doing. Um, it's, it's one of those things that really needs to be almost completely healed before you can start to do anything. And I think that's part of the problem, isn't it? That players, the teams and the players both want to have the player back out on the field. So, you know, it's one of those deals where a 90% recovery in most instances, you can sort of work your way through it and build back up. But these obliques seem to reoccur at 90%. Yeah. You know, the guy comes back and he just, it's too soon. He has to be a hundred percent there. Right. And, and like most muscle injuries like that, um, the player, it gets to a point where the player doesn't feel any pain, but the muscle isn't done healing. And that's what exposes players to, um, to the risk of re-injury. Um, so yeah, it's, and, and we see it a lot more in pitchers. I mean, we see it in hitters too, but it's a lot of, in a lot of cases it's pitchers and we see, you know, guys can miss, you know, three or four months with, with an oblique injury. Um, so it, it is one of those that, you know, even if the team is saying eight to 12 weeks, um, there's always that concern that it lingers because it, it is, um, there's a lot of healing that needs to take place before the player can come back. And one last thing about obliques and other injuries, when we look at statistics like StatCast statistics or performance statistics, we often wonder about the stickiness of the stat, meaning how likely is it to reoccur for that player? Is the same thing true of injuries? Do they have greater or lesser degrees of stickiness that once an oblique has been injured, it is likelier or not as likely? Or what are the statistics for injuries as far as uh, recurrence? So, um, yeah, broken bones, um, once they're healed, they're, they're usually fine unless there's, um, some effect on the soft tissue around the bones. Um, you know, so if a player, you know, uh, broken arm, broken leg, uh, even a broken finger, usually once that's healed, they're fine. And there's, there's really no increased risk at that point. Um, muscle injuries, soft tissue injuries do tend to recur at a higher rate, um, because they're, you know, depending on the degree, there can be some scarring in the tissue that, that, you know, uh, when, when a bone heals, there's, there's some scarring of a sort around the bone. You can usually see where the bone was broken and, and healed. Uh, but that actually usually makes the bone stronger, uh, scar tissue in a, in a soft tissue, scar tissue in a muscle or tendon or, or a labrum, um, uh, usually makes that tissue a little bit weaker. So there's, there's more chance of recurrence. Um, the greatest risk of recurrence for, uh, particularly for a muscle strain is the first two to three weeks after the player comes back, because, you know, as we said, it's not fully healed. Um, and then there, there actually is quite a bit of data that shows that the most, that the, um, that the players who are most likely to be injured in a given year were players that were injured the previous year. So there really is overall with injuries, there is, there is definitely uh, some stickiness in that 
players who get hurt tend to get hurt more often overall. Um, so the, 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 really the best predictor of an injury is whether or not a player had a similar injury in the year or two before. So the answer, the answer is the general answer is yes. Um, you know, uh, uh, players, players who, who have uh, significant injury history um, are always greater risk. And what about the idea of ca- uh, injuries that result from cascade? And by that, I mean a player injures some, maybe his ankle and he's a pitcher. And to compensate for it, he, he alters his mechanics in some subtle way because his body is telling him, stop landing on your foot this way because it hurts. And so he adjusts things. And the next thing you know, he's got knee trouble or hip trouble or even arm trouble because there's something different about the kinetic chain that affects the whole thing and the change can lead to some kind of injury from overuse or use of a slightly different part of the system. Yeah, absolutely. You, you definitely see, you'll see that a lot in pitchers who have uh, minor tears in their UCL. They might develop shoulder issues, back issues because they're altering their motion. And a lot of times the player doesn't even realize they're doing it. If anyone, if anyone has ever had a frozen shoulder, usually there's an impingement in the shoulder, which causes a little bit of pain when you move in a certain way. So you un, subconsciously, you stop moving in that way. And then the tissues start to start to uh, tighten up because you're not moving them as much. And then that causes more pain. And it gradually over time, you lose a lot of range of motion because you're literally just not moving your, your joint very much. And that, not that exact circumstance, but that can certainly happen with pitchers. Then there's a reverse kind of cascade that can happen when a pitcher recovers from an injury, pitcher with an elbow, you know, say Tommy John surgery comes back and all of a sudden they have shoulder problems because all of the stress that the elbow was absorbing, now it's healthy and, um, and now, now a lot of that stress is being transmitted to the shoulder instead. Um, so pitchers can have that where, where they get healthy and a certain part of the body gets healthy um, but now there's another weak point in that kinetic chain that starts to act up, um, which I, and I think that's one reason why you do see, uh, injuries recur with the same player over and over again. Um, it's because of, that's, that's a part of it is, is whether it cascade or reverse cascade. Well, Matt, it's very interesting stuff. And as the basic statistical stuff becomes more and more diffuse in the fantasy playing community. Everybody knows about StatCast, or most good players know about StatCast and, and the implications of that. It seems like one of the information advantage areas that's going to make the difference in a lot of league play is going to be the ability to understand injuries and to understand how to manage them not only inside the world of Major League Baseball, but here in our world where the question is, what is the risk of this player not being able to perform as as I expect him to perform, or what is the opportunity that exists because he's going to perform better than everybody thinks because, oh, he was injured, I'm laying off. But if you know that the injury is the kind of thing that doesn't persist for whatever reason, it's an information edge, and you're providing it to readers at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, how can listeners keep up with your publishing schedule, and are you on Twitter, social media, that kind of stuff? So, yeah, so um, Market Pulse and during the preseason is published once a week. Um, usually either Sunday or Monday, depending on where we are in the, in the preseason ramp up. Um, and then 
The last two pieces, the all value and the all avoid, actually publish on Friday, uh, so that if anyone's drafting that weekend, they can you know get a chance to read that before they have to go into their draft. Um, the uh, big hurt column, uh, we actually have one that actually hit this week. I think it was Wednesday. Um, so for the until the season begins, we'll do one a week, um, and then once we get into the season, it's um, uh, Wednesday, Saturday, and Monday. Um, so those are, you know, we, we, uh, start a new column on Wednesday and update it on Saturday and Monday. Um, so that, you know, we're hopefully keeping on top of, you know, whatever the injuries are, we don't want more than two or three days to go by without commenting on, on a new situation. Um, and I am, I'm, I'm not a, a ton on social media, but I am on Twitter, uh, the big hurt HQ, um, and I, you know, my, my Twitter is almost entirely uh, baseball related. I try to keep that no politics, no family photos. It's, it's, it's mostly about baseball. Following that Twitter feed will keep you up to date on when the new big hurts have landed at baseballhq.com. So if, as a little reminder, there's a reason to follow uh, at the big hurt HQ. Yeah, absolutely. I, I am not, uh, I'm not very good at tweeting when I've got a new column landing, but, uh, the main baseball HQ Twitter account usually does and tags me. Um, so, uh, you know, if you're following me, you should, you should hear about that, but it's, it's a very regular schedule. So, you know, Wednesday, Saturday, Monday, um, you know, you can, you can pretty much count on it being there. All right, Matt, thanks very much for helping us out. It's very interesting. It's always fun talking with you about these kinds of things because you obviously are paying attention and and uh, providing such excellent information. I do appreciate it, and I'll catch up with you again during the season. Great. Thanks, Patrick. It's good to be here. Matt Cedarholm is the Market Pulse and Big Hurt columnist at BaseballHQ.com. And hey, before we roll ahead, I wanted to let you know about our next show. It's another Two Tout Tuesday edition. Jeff Erickson from Rotowire and Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus, two of my competitors in Saturday's Tout American League draft. That's Jeff Erickson and Mike Gianella. Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Coming up now, we have our regular HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute and Frequent Flyer, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Yes, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular commentaries. The frequent flyer is coming up and leading off. It's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at San Diego center fielder and shortstop C.J. Abrams is Baseball HQ Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. C.J. Abrams was the sixth overall pick in the 2019 draft out of high school in Georgia and has quickly turned into one of the most exciting and intriguing prospects in the minors. 
When drafted, scouts raved about Abram's athleticism, his natural feel for hitting, and his 80-grade speed, but the consensus was that despite his lean 6'2 frame, Abram's swing path and approach was unlikely to lead to even average power. While his line-drive, contact-oriented approach could limit his long-term power development, Abram showed enough in his professional debut to create optimism about the development of 15-20 to 20 home run power down the road. All Abrams did in his pro debut was slash 393 with a 436 on base percentage and a 647 slugging percentage with 13 doubles, 8 triples, and 3 home runs, and 15 stolen bases and 150 at-bats, and that he did as an 18-year-old. He then went on to be named the MVP of the Arizona Fall League, where he hit 401 with a 442 on base percentage and a 662 slugging percentage with 3 more home runs and 14 stolen bases. Like most prospects in baseball, Abrams missed out on the full minor league season in 2020, but he did spend his summer at the Padres' alternate training site, where he continued to draw rave reviews for his work ethic and improvements he made on defense. He certainly has the speed and range to stick at shortstop, but with the presence of Fernando Tatis Jr., Abrams will need to find a new defensive home, and center field seems like the most likely landing spot. Abrams has a quick bat and surprising pop, and has worked to improve his plate discipline. So far this spring, that work seems to be paying off, and Abrams has not looked overmatched despite his lack of professional experience. In 32 spring at-bats, Abrams is hitting 250 with a triple and two home runs, and three more stolen bases. Long-term, few prospects have created as much buzz as C.J. Abrams, and he could force his way to the majors much sooner than anyone anticipated. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon is a member of the Baseball HQ Scouting Team, and he gives us his Minor League Minute here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And speaking of scouting, this week at BaseballHQ.com, Chris Blessing debuts his new column, This, Not That. It's a space to argue against the mainstream consensus on prospects. The goal is to keep you a step ahead by making predictions based on realistic outcomes. In his first column, Chris looks at two Diamondbacks prospects, Christian Robinson and Corbin Carroll. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your draft and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. And here with a look at Seattle infielder Ty France is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. His swing is a swing, and it's really a thing this spring. <laughs> Referencing Daniel Kramer's March 9, 2021 article on MLB.com, who in turn quoted 26-year-old Seattle Mariners infielder Ty France as saying, I feel like my swing has been pretty similar my entire life. I've been fortunate enough to be able to hit for most of my life. It's not something where I try and go out and change. At this point in my career, I feel like... My swing is my swing. I've been playing baseball since I was two years old. Well, maybe not professionally. A good age is hard to find for two-year-olds, or so we're told. That's why Ty France, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available late in your draft. But being considered to be a long shot, or even being available late in a draft, is nothing new for Ty France. Drafted in the 34th round, yes, the 34th round in 2015 by the San Diego Padres, with the 1,017th overall selection, perhaps Ty France has already defied Major League odds. In fact, he may be part of the Seattle Mariners' opening day roster in 2021. 
because, as we've said before, his swing is a swing, quoting Ty France, and it's really a thing this spring. Through only 26 spring training at-bats, Ty France has already launched four home runs and is currently batting for 23. Of course, it's a very, very, very small sample size, but consider this. Ty France batted 399, yes, 399, just short of 400, with 27 home runs, probably also just short of 400, well, maybe 400 feet, that is, at AAA in 2019, on his way to earning both the Pacific Coast League's Rookie of the Year Award and the Pacific Coast League's Most Valuable Player Award, and more. Plus, did we mention that Ty France batted 305 with four home runs in 43 Major League games in 2020? Pretty good encore. Additionally, Ty France can play three infield positions, first base, second base, and third base, proving his versatility as a late-round pick. Thus, quoting Baseball HQ's 2021 baseball forecaster, ultimately, position flexibility is his best attribute. However, the power upside isn't too bad either. We're currently projecting Ty France to bet 276 with 18 home runs in 2021, perhaps partially based upon his expected linear weighted power index of 100 in 2021, according to the tools available to you at BaseballHQ.com. Additionally, we're currently projecting and expecting 26-year-old Seattle Mariners infielder Ty France to provide late-round swing value as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 19th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 14 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon. And our Frequent Flyer commentator was Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky. Of course, I also want to thank our HQ Spotlight guest for this Friday News and Notes edition, Matt Cederholm, who writes The Market Pulse and The Big Hurt at BaseballHQ.com. He's a fine columnist at the site and a great, too infrequent guest here at Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with another Two Tout Tuesday edition. And listen to this lineup. Jeff Erickson from Rotowire and Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Jeff Erickson, Mike Gianella, and me coming up Tuesday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. Hope to see you then. It's Baseball HQ Radio and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. 
Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.